The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode, episode 63. And today's guest is the Irish superstar of English wine, Dermot Segru. From Nye Timber to Whiston Estate and more recently his own baby, Segru South Downs, he has been a trailblazer with the medals to match. And talking of trophies, as ever, your recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Dermot Segru is an Irishman with impeccable English credentials when it comes to wine. Uh, once described by the legendary Stephen Spurrier, no less, as the best winemaker in England, and by Hugh Johnson, OBE, as the finest producer of English sparkling wine. Uh, he's come a long way from Plumpton College's viticulture and enology course uh, to craft a distinctive range of sparkling wines that it's no exaggeration to say have put England on the world winemaking map. First at Nye Timber, um, then as the head winemaker at Whiston Estate for 15 years, a role that he will leave this autumn. And also at Jenkin Place um, and making wines for Digby too. Um, he's won acclaim and amassed a, a groaning shelf of trophies. Uh, his more recent solo project, his own brand, Sugru South Downs, is now his primary focus together with his wife, Anna, and I'm delighted to say he joins us now on The Drinking Hour from his honeymoon uh, with Anna, which is above and beyond. So welcome, Dermot. Hi, David. Hello. Yes, breaking news. Uh, uh, Being interviewed whilst on our honeymoon in Tenerife. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm very grateful uh, that you have um, found the time. And I'm sure Anna must have a dartboard with a picture of me on uh, right now as, <laughs> as yeah, I'm dragging well you away. <laughs> well used so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's get to straight into it then um you were born and raised in ireland um as uh, as the accent suggests um you arrived in the uk i think aged 18 and you'd already dabbled in a bit of booze making by then hadn't you it's true yeah um i, I discovered uh, uh, brewing beer when i was about 15 years of age and it, it captivated me um and uh, then shortly afterwards when i was about 16 years of age and and uh, you know i'd been brewing vast quantities hectoliters of beer every month um a local archdeacon saw my my passion for for making booze and he gave me a bottle of um country wine that he'd made himself an elderly elderberry port and this uh, totally captivated me so I started winemaking from an early age with those kind of strange crazy uh, um, uh, fruits and vegetables that uh, things other than grapes so it, it really did um, grab my attention as a teenager. I suspect a man of the cloth is probably a, a good person to learn from actually given the origins of um, of, of sparkling wine uh, in, in, in the world. Uh, what attracted you to um, winemaking as a proper career then? Um, well, when I was um, a little bit older, I, I tasted some great wine for the first time. It was actually with, with my mother and tasted some, some Spanish wines, actually from uh, Torres wines from the, the Masla Plana from 1982 vintage. Um, and when I tasted those, that's when I realized, wow, wine can be something absolutely extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily compact, complex and captivating when it's just made from grapes. So that that really um, crystallized uh, uh, my uh, desire to be a winemaker. 
But like everything, when you're a teenager, you kind of forget about these things because life drags you in different directions. And I, of course, went to university. I left Ireland. Pretty much everybody in the early 90s was leaving Ireland, um, either to go to university abroad like I did or just to emigrate and have a, a better life because things were not... This is well before the Celtic Tiger. Um, so I came to the UK, came to England and did a degree in environmental sciences. And you attended Plumpton College uh, after that, a few years uh, later. I mean, Plumpton's got a, an amazing reputation uh, these days. Uh, but back then, I'm sure it had a great reputation then, by the way, too. But English wine meant something very different back then, didn't it? It did, you know, and um, even to go back further, you know, when I came to university first in, in the 1990s, I didn't even realise that Plumpton existed if I had known that there was a winemaking course because there was back in the late 1980s is when Chris Foss established the first Plumpton winemaking course in a chicken shed. Um, at the Agricultural College just north of Brighton, you know, it probably looked a little bit like my bedroom at the time with demijohns <laughs> and plastic fermenting bins around the place. But I didn't know that existed. Um, and of course, by the time I, I then went to Plumpton, it was in the early 2000s. I'd already done a couple of um, uh, vintages in Bordeaux in, at, uh, in Saint-Julien and the year before that in, in Pomerol, so I had a pretty good understanding of what I wanted to do. But yeah, back then English wine was a very different landscape. It was dominated by white Germanic still varieties, things like Müller-Turgau, Reichensteiner, Seval Blanc. And, uh, and quite strange red varieties like um, uh, Triomphe d'Alsace, Rondo, Regent, uh, various other things like this. But, of course, it was at that time that the emergence of English sparkling wine was, was just on the cusps. cusp. It was happening at that stage in the early 2000s. Given you have enjoyed so much incredible success with uh, champagne-style sparkling wine, although we shouldn't say champagne-style because English is a thing in its own right now, where did the kind of the crucial sparkling bit of the jigsaw come from? Well, it was originally the um, uh, Stuart and Sandy Moss, the American couple from Chicago, who came over and um, they were fascinated, first of all, by, by Chippendale furniture. That was their, their passion. And uh, they bought Nightimber, the, the, the house, in order to, to kind of indulge in that passion. But they soon realized that, um, uh, uh, that the land there would have been very, very suitable for viticulture. And they had some French people over to, to, to analyze it, look at it, and they decided to take the plunge. And I suppose unlike maybe English people, if they were in that position, the Americans thought, well, let's get the Champenois. Let's, let's lean on the expertise that's just across the channel here. And, um, and they worked with them right from the very, very start. Um, and I think they, the, you know, it was quite a, an early stage that they realized that they could produce something wonderful with the 1992 vintage, which was a great vintage almost everywhere. Um, and uh, but certainly in England, and uh, they realised that the wines that they, they bottled the next year were, were had the potential to be really really great. And then when they were first disgorged in '95 and released in '96, they realised that they had something very very special on their hands in terms of it was it was a Blanc Blanc, it was Chardonnay, which had been previously considered to be the most difficult grape that you could possibly try to ripen in the UK. But they did it first time at Night Timber with the release of that 1992 vintage, um, and then. You know, once news of that wine um, uh, filtered out across the world, which was, you know, through the prism of journalists and critics and wine authors and wine merchants who tasted that wine for the first time and declared it was an epiphany, then other wine producers started to take note.
And the 1992 vintage of Nightimber, I think, is the one that Oz Clark uh, talks about with this uh, uh, sort of this twinkle, uh, with the with his sort of uh, rose tinting his eyes uh, as, as he as as he uh, sort of reflects uh, on it. Um, I'm guessing when um, English vintages are, are spoken about, then that that is going to be one of the the greatest of of all time, I guess. Well, I think it's it's certainly um, very, very uh, pertinent and poignant in, in that it was kind of a breakthrough wine. Um, I think other vintages that, <clears throat> and certainly ones that I've been involved in, uh, you know, you could say much later, but it was 2003 vintage, which was actually my, my first year at, at Nightimber, um, was, was a remarkable vintage. And those wines nearly 20 years later are still in fantastic form, which just goes to show you what we can produce in England. And I think that 2003 vintage really is is emblematic of the effect of climate change in the UK um, and what allowed us to start making those uh, uh, fantastic wines in the 1990s and then throughout the, the 2000s has allowed us to make consistently wines of uh, ripeness and aging ability and and you know and and, and real real quality um because that was a super warm uh, heatwave vintage in 2003 and of course over the last two decades virtually every year is getting warmer and warmer you know as a result of of global warming it was at night timber uh, in that period that you really broke through yourself uh, wasn't it as well that you first really started to get noticed as uh, a really serious English winemaker. Uh, it's true. It was a wonderful platform for me. I think what was um, was really, really special for me was, was working with um, a consultant winemaker from Champagne because um, I immersed myself in Champagne. I started traveling very, very frequently uh, to Champagne. In fact, I, I was there, you know, just all the time, really, for the first 10 years of my winemaking career in England, either to go there to buy equipment or to just absorb the culture and, and learn and meet from other winemakers there. Um, so it was a fantastic introduction. And I feel in many ways, in fact, it's been said to me that I was really well received by the Champenois. And I think maybe being Irish and being a bit of a, a stranger in England, an outsider in England, um, made me very, very uh, um, well received in France. And I've made, you know, I've got so many great friends uh, in the region and I still visit there as often as I can. But it had a profound effect on me. So I do consider myself French trained for sure. And next came a, a major step in your career, which actually it's, it's still your role, although not for much longer, Wiston Estate. Tell us, you've enjoyed so much success there uh, with those those wines. How did that come about and, and what has kept you there so long? Well, it was um, it was a chance meeting really with, happy, with Harry and Pip Goring, a chance happy meeting with Harry and Pip Goring um, in, I think, 2004 or maybe 2005 um, when they visited Nightingale and they told me of their desire, or at least uh, Pip Goring's desire to plant a vineyard in the south of England um, on chalk soil. Uh, they had a large estate. Um, I visited uh, it and, uh, and I recommended where they could plant a, a vineyard and they went ahead with it. And um, I thought it was such an exciting project that I ended up leaving Nightimber, which was, you know, the best winemaking job in the country, to start this new project right from the very, very uh, scratch with, with uh, the Goring family at Whist estate. It was tremendously exciting. It's what I always wanted to do was start off a new project from scratch and the lure um, of, of, of working with uh, working with vines 
planted directly on chalk um, in the South Downs was just a massive fascination for me, um, especially, I suppose, because I'd been so inspired by the wines of the Côte de Blanc in Champagne. The, those Chardonnay and Blanc de Blanc wines were, were, um, were really, really a powerful, motivating force for me wanting to start that project at Whiston Estate. We realised very, very early on that... Um, that I couldn't really develop the project in the way that we wanted to, i.e. by building a winery, unless we did something innovative. So I actually launched the UK's first contract winemaking service specifically for traditional method sparkling wines. And because I had a, a, a pretty good reputation from my time at Nightimber, a lot of people trusted me to make their wines for them. And that uh, generated revenue. Um, in order to build the winery, expand the winery, eventually employ some people to, to help me. And, uh, and now, well, 16 years later, um, the project is, is, is absolutely thriving. You know, we've, yeah, we make multiple wines for multiple vineyards, including our own Whiston Estate wines. And of course, my own Sugru South Downs wines have been made there. And uh, we've just opened a restaurant and, uh, and a visitor center and a shop and tours and it's extraordinary what what that Whiston Estate project which was you know just sticks in the ground in May 2006 what has matured into now in 2022. Mm. It's interesting actually that that point you make there about the the restaurant the kind of idea of the, the winery and the estate as a visitor attraction that's something that I, I sense is just changing before our eyes at the moment. English wine scene is doing amazing work with opening itself up as an attraction. And it's really proving to be very attractive to people, isn't it? It really is. I mean, Whiston is a brilliant example of, of you could call it the Napaization of the uh, South Downs wine route, or at least the you know, wine country in the south of England. Um, we've had uh, a number of, uh, of, of, of wineries which have opened their doors to tourism uh, over years like Rathfinney, Bolney, Tinwood, Ridgeview. Um, but with, 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 with Whiston comes something really quite extraordinary because it's a first-rate restaurant. Um, it's a beautiful, magical setting. You're right at the, the foot of the South Downs. You're in the South Downs National Park, celebrating all that produce from across the estate and from local producers. And it's just a magnificent place for people to, to come and, and, and visit. And you're less than an hour and a half away from London. So, you know, the market that we have... Uh, uh, say, just in the south of England and particularly London, um, the proximity of those airports that we have in the south of England, and more importantly, this appetite and appreciation uh, for, for English wine that exists today um, is, is a remarkable cocktail for, for success and future development of the wine route in this part of the world. Mm, it's it's really exciting to be living through this, uh, I think, as it is with just the explosion of the success of, of English wine more generally. Um, you, as you mentioned there, do this um, sort of contract winemaking uh, job. Uh, you've done it very successfully. <coughs> Obviously, you've made wines for Whiston, as you said, for uh, Digby, for, for, a, for a while at least, for, for Jenkin Place. Um, how do you, if, if this isn't a sort of naive question, um, how do you, when you're making all these different wines, how do you kind of respect their own 
personalities as individual wines because presumably mm. they these people don't want you making the same wine for everyone mm. no of course it's, it's really really important well first of all i think you've got to start off with with something that i've i've, I've always really uh, welcomed and enjoyed and, and thrived uh, 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 around uh, all of my professional life and that's collaborating collaborating with other people uh, and and you know making wines under contract or making wines for other people, other vineyards that don't have their own winery, is an enormously collaborative partnership um, uh, arrangement where you know my goal as the winemaker, or rather my my duty as the winemaker, is to make the best quality wine for that. Uh, client that vineyard so they are effectively going to be single vineyard wines in many many instances not all and uh, and I want to try and get the best expression of that vineyard and make the best wine possible for that client for both themselves and for me as the winemaker because I'm I'm very very proud of what I do and I take a great responsibility for what I do um, so, so you've got to give those those individual vin vineyards the respect that they demand and that they deserve, um, and then it's all about a relationship over time. Because the longer you work with a vineyard, be it a single vineyard or otherwise, over time, the more you understand about that terroir because that's what it is, uh, and the more you 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 learn, you understand what that terroir is capable of, what its best. Uh, uh, stylistic attributes are in terms of what wines to make and maybe what wines to kind of steer away from. Um, so the, having those relationships over time, uh, building them um, uh, uh, and just learning more and more and more about you know, re vineyard differences, regional differences. And of course, me, I've had the opportunity to expand my experience and learn um, uh, so much by making so many different wines every year. In many, many years, I've, I've been making, you know, 20, 25, up to 30 individual cuvées every single year. Uh, that represents a lot of trial and error, shall we say. Uh, talking of vineyards and their own uh, distinctive um, Telwar, you have your own, your first vineyard, I think, that, that was yours, uh, was at uh, Storrington Priory uh, in the South Downs. Um, it didn't actually, um, sadly, have the most auspicious of starts, did it? <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, it wasn't. I'm just going to come back to a point that you made, actually, uh, a moment ago, David, about you know, how remarkable it is what's happening in the south of England with, with uh, tourism and, and English viticulture and English winemaking. Last year, um, I was invited to a lunch with, uh, with Hugh Johnson and uh, Tony Laithwaite uh, up at um, uh, Tony's son's vineyard in, in Marlow, uh, Harrow and Hope. And we were having lunch and we were chatting and having a tasting of various wines. And, and Hugh Johnson said uh, so something that, that Tony Laithwaite immediately agreed with. And it was absolutely fascinating. He said that probably the most extraordinary thing that he has seen in his lifetime, that it, because he could never have predicted it, was the emergence of English wine on the world stage. And, and Tony Lathwaite immediately agreed and said they couldn't think of anything that was more extraordinary and more that they thought was more unlikely to happen in their lifetime. So it, mm -hmm. it is, it's totally remarkable, really, what, what's happening in England over the, the last couple of decades. Um, I digress. Yeah, when I was at, at, at Night Timber, I was approached by a, a monastic order of Catholic priests uh, who were allowed to speak so they could 
proposed the idea to me that they had a patch of land and um, and, uh, and did I think it was suitable for viticulture. We ended up planting a vineyard there and, uh, and, and it's turned out to be very, very successful. But yes, the first vintage was an absolute disaster in respect that uh, birds um, ate every single grape or at least more than 99% of the crop of the first year, which should have been 2008, was, was eaten by birds. And that's uh, one of the reasons why the, the working project of the, the, the wine has always been the trouble with dreams. <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes sense. I did wonder about, it's a lovely name, the trouble with dreams. It's a lovely wine as well. But um, I did wonder where that uh, came from and, and that would explain it. If, if 99% of what you'd uh, lovingly grown was munched by birds, that's, uh, we, that's not we, <laughs> we actually had to, we just laughed you know when when you when you um when you pick a, a vineyard you need to do an assessment you know usually the day beforehand how many picking crates you need how many pickers what transport you need you know to organize the logistics of harvest and uh and and you know i reckon there was about a ton of grapes there which is you know very small vineyard one hectare the first first harvest on it three years after planting and uh, yeah, we didn't pick a thousand kilos. We picked less than 15 kilos uh, on that morning. And, and yeah, we, we laughed. That's <laughs> all uh, you could do rather than crying. Well, yeah, well, that's the right attitude. Um, 2009 then, uh, presumably you've got some netting or something. That was um, the first vintage for uh, the Trouble With Dreams, I think, wasn't it? It was indeed. And we had a very, very interesting uh, um, uh, development when a local uh, lady who I know um, she called me up and she said, Dermot, I've just been judging at a local primary school a scarecrow making competition. <laughs> and I've, the, there's about eight scarecrows left over here. Do you want any of them from, from your vineyard? So I quickly chucked a trailer onto the back of the Land Rover, drove over there and piled eight uh, scarecrows into the back of it. And, uh, and then at, uh, at a, a few weeks in September, a few weeks before harvest, we put them up and uh, the, the vineyard looked absolutely ridiculous. You could probably see it from space. It had so much stuff going on in it. But we managed to bring home the first harvest of, uh, of the Trouble with Dreams of Sugarsout Downs, Storrington Priory Vineyard in 2009. And that's what made the, the first wine. And then, um, yeah, the, the, the scarecrows would hibernate in the vineyard shed for the next 11 months and they'd, we'd pull them out every year. It's like a Wurzel Gummidge uh, sort of um, tribute <laughs> band or something. Um, do you still have any of that uh, 2009? Are you, do you library your vintages? I do. I always try and keep some back. Uh, it, it can end up being a little bit um, uh, higgledy-piggledy about where, where bottles are around the winery or at home or places like this. Um, but I always, always try and keep some back because it's really, really important to to have a, a memory of the vineyard in the future. You know, in 20 years time, I'd love to be able to to pour a vertical of, of Sugru South Downs and indeed of the, the, the Whiston wines. Um, so it's really important to keep those. I haven't tasted. I actually, the last time I opened in 2009 was for Neil Martin when he came and visited uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, and, and uh, he didn't give it a fantastic score, actually. It was quite an old bottle that had been on cork for a long time, probably been on Lees for two years and then on cork for about 15 <laughs> years. But, um, uh, yeah, that's the last time I tasted it. And a really interesting wine. Very, very interesting wine. Yeah. And tell us about, uh, you've got some great names uh, for uh, your, your wines. As I say, I, I love the trouble with dreams. It's, it just... Um, has a sort of wonderful kind of romantic kind of um, sound to it. Um, another one, rather less romantic sounding, but um, a, a cuvee of which you're very 
uh, proud, uh, Dr. Brendan O'Regan. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there's, you could say there's possibly a bit of a morbid theme going through the names of the wines, because a lot of them are named after dead family members. Um, but I think that's quite fair. I'd quite like to have a wine named after me, I suppose, once I'm gone. Um, but Dr. Brendan O'Regan, so he, he was um, uh, my granduncle, or rather he was the brother of my grandmother. And uh, he passed away in 2007. Um, in 2017 would have been his centenary. And he's, he's somebody in Ireland, in Irish uh, political and cultural uh, and, 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 and social life, who was um, greatly, greatly respected for his contribution he made to the uh, prosperity of the west coast of Ireland, particularly when he created the world's first duty-free shop at Shannon Airport in 1947. Um, and then in 1951, he created the um, Shannon uh, School of Hotel Management, which is one of the most um, uh, famous and respected hotel management schools in the world today. He went on to have lots of other very notable uh, uh, achievements in his life, such as um, creating the, the Enterprise Zone around Shannon Airport. He, he effectively created Ireland's uh, uh, um, most recent town because he, he created so much employment in the area that they built a town um, uh, next to Shannon Airport for people to, to live and, and, and work and thrive. And um, he was also involved in probably what he would consider his greatest achievement, um, in in uh, promoting cooperation between the different communities on either side of the border, um, between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, in creating organisations, one called Cooperation North and the other the Irish Peace Institute. And, and those organisations directly led to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, or at least created the foundation for what became the Good Friday Agreement um, uh, several decades on. On top of that, he also invented the Irish coffee. Wow. <laughs> Quite a list of achievements, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite, uh, it's quite yeah. a medical card, isn't it? It is, rather. It is. Um, let's, a, a big question for you. Um, so um, we, we're talking about that, 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 you know, that, that, how exciting it is to be uh, in this moment with uh, English wine going uh, great guns. Uh, so what is it uh, that makes the parts of England where grapes are, are popping up all the time, what is it that makes England so special? Okay, so c clearly our geology is, is, is very, very important. But I think, first of all, you know, climate is, 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 is massively, massively important. Um, uh, the climate is warming. Um, however, we are a cool climate viticultural region. You, it's always been considered a marginal climate for grape growing, but it's getting less and less marginal every year, you could say. Um, cool climate viticulture can promote beautiful, pristine, finely focused uh, fruit flavours in wines that is really difficult to achieve in warmer uh, uh, climates. Um, so this is particularly suitable for making delicate still white wines and rosés, you could say, but particularly uh, uh, suitable for making very high quality sparkling wines. And, and I'd say, you know, traditional method sparkling wine, the highest expression that you can get from that. So this long, cool growing season um, allows us to ripen grapes to a very, very high level. They may not be high in terms of maturity of sugar that you'll get in other climates, but physiologically ripe grapes, we can achieve these very, very often. There are challenges, uh, and the, the challenges really come in the, the respect of us being a maritime climate, so there's a lot of moisture, 
Um, there's a lot of opportunity for fungal infections such as downy mildew, powdery mildew and inevitable botrytis to, 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 to grow. So you need to be very, very careful with that. But the quality of the grapes that we can grow in almost every year means we've got a fantastic chance of making really high quality wine and, and very often exceptional uh, uh, quality sparkling wine most years. But the, the challenges need to be dealt with though. On top of that, the mosaic of soils that we have in the south of England is particularly good. Chalk is the standout example that everybody talks about. Um, there are there are actually, ironically, there's not as many vineyards planted directly on chalk in the UK as, as, as you would think from the way people talk about it. There's a lot more vineyards planted on different soil types, such as uh, sandy soils, green sand soils, um, clay soils. But chalk really is the is, is this tremendous natural asset that we have in the south of England for, for growing high-quality sparkling wines. And people talk about uh, you know, ripening being a challenge sometimes uh, in, a, in a dodgy summer in England. And we have plenty of dodgy summers uh, in, in terms of, you know, sunbathing and, and having al fresco suppers is concerned. But actually, it's much, by this, from what you're saying, it's much more nuanced than that. Uh, yeah, it is, because, you know, to, 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 to have a successful year in the vineyard, um, uh, it's, it's about weather conditions at critical uh, times of the year. Um, you know, avoiding frost is, is, is a clear one. You know, frost is the biggest threat to vineyards in the UK. And that's all about the location of your vineyard. You know, if you can be frost free, then that's a, that's a fantastic opportunity for success, uh, or at least to avoid failure. Um, uh, critical periods are exactly where we are now, towards the end of June, um, middle to the end of June, start of July, flowering. This is when uh, uh, the fruit set is achieved. When we have, um, uh, you know, dry, warm weather at this time of year, we can set a good crop, and that determines the quantity of grapes that we'll have later on in the year. Nothing to do with quality, really, but the quantity. And this is where we struggle because we have big fluctuations in yield every year. So it's really about the quality of the weather at this time of year. If it's wet, if it's windy, if it's cold, fruit set and the quantity of grapes we, we, we achieve is, is severely diminished. Then in terms of ripeness and the quality of that grapes, that really is, you know, August doesn't really matter so much as long as you can deal with inevitable rain and some heat in August. Um, and can get through it by protecting your crop against disease. It's really all about September and early October for, for those ripening months or those ripening weeks. And, uh, and if, you can, if we can enjoy some of the weather that we're seeing more and more often now is these luminous, dry Indian summers of September's and into October, this is absolutely the critical, critical time for getting the, getting those grapes ripe. Um, and you know the temperatures are getting ripe, uh, warmer and warmer every single year. So it's about it's about managing the risks and the threats, and then having a bit of luck on your side. Mm. So often the way in life, um, those um, champagne grapes, as we call them um, in this context, uh, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier. You talked about immersing yourself in champagne, which sounds like a lovely idea. Um, hmm. uh, and obviously, you're you're certainly immersed in English sparkling wine. Um, how do those grapes uh, differ in character? Um, the ones you work with in England versus the ones you've worked with in Champagne? Well, first of all, I think, you know, th there's been a rush to plant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the UK over the last 
15, 20 years, um, and that's thoroughly understandable. Not many people have been planting Pinot Meunier, which is quite strange. It's, it's, it's always been the less glamorous of the grapes when, 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 when you kind of think about it or when you talk about them. But Pinot Meunier is, a, is an amazing grape variety for the UK. Um, you know, it, it, it puts its buds out later than the other two. It ripens its grapes earlier than the other two. So it's got the shorter growing cycle. Um, then Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and it produces fabulously fruity wines which age, um, um, which, which mature more quickly than the other two. So it's interesting that not enough people, not many people have planted Meunier. It's only, it only accounts for about 10% of the vineyard area in the UK, where, whereas Chardonnay is 30%, Pinot Noir is about 30% as well. Um, so more Meunier would, would do very, very well in the UK, I think. Um, Pinot Noir, people have a fascination with Pinot Noir and, and I completely understand that. For me, it's actually probably the least interesting of all the varieties. I would suggest in the UK, okay, when you, when you, when you come into the territory of trying to make a, a red wine from Pinot Noir, then you're in, in an altogether different landscape of challenge and opportunity uh, and, and probably obsession. Um, but um, f for me, Chardonnay really is, is, is the, the grape variety which is most compelling in terms of its potential for absolute greatness or great, great winemaking in the UK. And that's why I'm particularly obsessed with Chardonnay. Um, the Sugru Saltdowns range of wines, they're all, well, with the exception of the, the, the Rosé uh, Ex Machina, which we just launched a, a couple of months ago, they're all Chardonnay dominant wines. So the Cuvées are Chardonnay dominant. Uh, 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 even the, the, the Zero Dosage Zodo is Chardonnay dominant, and of course the Blanc Blanc is, is, is a center, uh, center part of, of, of that, that range. So for me, you know, I grow uh, uh, grapes on green sand soils as well as chalk soils, and for me Chardonnay is, is, is the most compelling of those, those three varieties. And you talked about Zero Dosage there. Um, it's a style, when done well, that I absolutely adore. But it can also, wherever it is, in England or, or in Champagne, frankly, um, it, it can at times be somewhat austere if it's, if it's in the wrong hands, I think. Um, what's the key? Because you make zero dosage very uh, successfully. Uh, what's the key? Uh, the, the key is you can, you, you, the vintage chooses itself. You can't choose which vintage to, to simply uh, put a small amount of dosage in. Well, you can, but it may not be very successful. In fact, it probably won't be very successful. The vintage needs to propose itself, and you only really know that over time. Um, when, you're, when you're disgorging the wines and, uh, and, and you taste the, the, the difference in the, um, in the texture of the, the palate of the wine. Only wines which have got this luxurious, silky, not necessarily low acid uh, 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 profile on the, on the palate, but those ones have got this, this lovely um, uh, creamy mouthfeel and, and naturally broad mouthfeel without the addition of sugar. Those are the wines that, that, that really put their hand up and say, guess what, I, I can cope here without any dosage. And that's really the way that I operate. Um, the first vintage where that has really become apparent was the 2014 vintage, you know, more so than the 2011. And 11 was again a heat wave year, but the wines just didn't taste complete 
as, as Zodo, as Zero Dosage. But the 2014, with sufficient time in the cellar, was like almost a no-brainer. The wine was so harmonious and had such kind of um, uh, depth of flavour and amplitude across the palate that it simply didn't didn't require any 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 uh, sugar and actually benefited from having its more savoury and saline characteristics uh, uh, amplified without addition of sugar that it, 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 it seemed like absolutely the logical thing to do. Other vintages which have presented themselves in a similar way are is the 2017 vintage which again is not something I would have thought of at the time when you're looking at the say the analysis of those grapes at harvest or the juice when it's coming in I don't think I would have believed anybody if somebody had said, oh, I think this 17 would be a great vintage for, for Zero Dosage five years down the line. I like to be led by the wines as they actually mature and reveal themselves over time rather than, than trying to achieve something like that. I think so. A lot of what you talk about is, is vintage specific. And of course, uh, English sparkling wine has emerged um, in a vintage specific fashion, but there mm. are uh, increasingly you know, non-vintage uh, sparkling wines being produced very successfully. Um, do, do you think um, that the future maybe is actually non-vintage? Yeah, I think it's got to be. I think it's got to be. Um, you know, the, there's a uh, the real focus of, of, of winemaking in, in England and Wales or the UK has been, of course, vintage wines because we're such a young country and, and you know, we've been producing wines of a vintage uh, for the last 20, 30, 40 years or whatever, but specifically the last, last 10, 15, 20 years. Wineries um, haven't built up any reserve stocks of, or rather, any stocks of reserve wine over that period of time. Time, or at least only a, a number of, say, the bigger wineries have been doing that as a stylistic choice. But I think it's inevitable that it'll that it'll happen. You know, um, 2021 last year was a very very challenging year. Um, you know, probably the worst year uh, for winemaking in England since 2012 uh, for me. And um, it was really really beneficial if you had some reserve wine in the cellar that you can improve both the quantity. Um, but particularly the quality of those 21 vintages uh, with, but with the addition of those reserve wines, because they're giving, you know, they're, they're giving some different dimension, they're giving maturity, they're giving uh, 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 um, uh, dimension of flavours and quality uh, that, that the 2021s are certainly going to be lacking. So I think it's inevitable in the future you will see more non-vintage. I prefer myself, as do, you know, a number of other producers these days, to talk about multi-vintage wines. Um, I think for the consumer, it's much more comprehensible and it's actually a much more real description of what we're doing when we're blending different vintages um, uh, to, to make wines that aren't from all from one year. So in the, the Sugru range, I, uh, actually the, the Brendan O'Regan is actually a, a multi-vintage wine. And uh, the Zodo Zero Dosage, I call it a multi-vintage wine as well, because very often there's a little bit of other, other wine added to that particular, um, the, the vintage that it focuses on. And I think it's, it's a good way of working. Yeah, actually multi-vintage just sounds a lot nicer than non-vintage, because by saying non-vintage, you're putting something negative at the beginning of the word. And, and, and that in itself, you know, just, just basic sort of marketing speak suggests that, uh, that having a negative at the, at the beginning of a name is, is not great so i think multi-vintage is uh, you're right it's um it's a lovely way of uh, and, and a comprehensible way of, of referring to those uh, wines um, do, do you get bored of people endlessly comparing english sparkling wine with champagne 
by the way? Um, uh, no, I don't. I think I've become pretty institutionalized with it um, now. I mean, it's the natural, it's the most natural thing in the world for uh, people who want to, uh, to make, people want to make comparisons. Uh, people want to benchmark certain wines against other wines. And Champagne is the most natural one for people to compare English sparkling wine to. Um, and it's arguably a lot better that they compare it to Champagne than say to Prosecco and, and other wines like that. But yeah, you, you need to um, have a benchmark to try and describe the quality of wines. And stylistically, maybe it's different. But from a qualitative point of view, uh, I think Champagne will always be the benchmark, and rightly so. But it happens in all, all winemaking. You know, everybody who's making a red Pinot Noir throughout the world, whether it's Chile or South Africa or Australia or Bulgaria or Northamptonshire, will talk about its burgundy-like qualities or its uh, burgundian um, uh, nature and things like this it's it's uh, it's to, to be expected you know is it a bad thing well you know English wines are their own thing champagne is its own thing they're from very very different um, uh, countries um, for one but um, anything that allows people to understand and 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 perceive the quality of, of English sparkling wines is a good thing English sparkling wine has changed at this lightning pace that we were uh, referencing earlier on. Um, that uh, that lovely uh, anecdote uh, uh, you talk about with uh, Hugh Johnson and, and uh, uh, Tony Lathwaite um, says it all, really. What do you think is next for the industry? What's next for the industry? Well, I think it's, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier on is this, uh, this growth in tourism. Uh, I think it's um, so well growth in production because more and more um, uh, people uh, are having conversations right now about planting a vineyard in the UK in the years ahead, either next summer or summers uh, or next next year or the years ahead of that. Um, uh, more and more uh, people who either own land, farmers are looking to diversify, or more and more people who have been successful in other industries are thinking about buying land or leasing land and planting vineyards. Um, they've got all sorts of different motivating uh, uh, impulses for doing that, but it's inevitable, it's happening. More and more vineyards are being planted every single year in the UK. So the landscape, the physical landscape of the south of England is changing. Only just a couple of years ago, the South Downs National Park uh, had a, a report written, commissioned a report, and it came back as being this is extremely favourable for the rural economy and the general economy of the, the South Downs National Park to have more vineyards, more tourism, more employment. Um, it's it's all positive from their point of view. So this is this is this is marching apace. Like I said earlier on, the the the, the dots are being joined on the English wine route for um, people to come and visit and move from one winery and vineyard to another, using the different hospitality and you know accommodation as well as uh, as restaurants uh, to to join up that that wine route. And I I just think in 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 ten twenty thirty years time we'll look back and say wow well this was the beginning of everything wasn't it? It's 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 happening and and developing right now and. And, you know, more and more people outside of the UK are hearing about what's happening in the UK. 
And, and of course, people in the wine world were fascinated with new developments, with new frontiers, wherever it is in the wine world. And we, we want to go and discover them. And, and that's precisely what's going to happen here in the UK or is happening here. Exciting, as we say. Um, talking of exciting, you've just got married, as we mentioned um, at the start, up to another winemaker, Anna. Will you um, make a wine together? Is that a, a kind of recipe for marital harmony? Um, yeah, I think it's it's first and foremost, Anna is a highly qualified winemaker, far more qualified than me. Um, Anna, Anna actually has a degree in horticulture and then a master's in enology and viticulture. She's worked in um, Peru, um, uh, New, uh, New Zealand, California, Germany, uh, four years in Austria, actually making uh, Riesling and Grunewaldiner in the Danube region for Schloss Goblesburg in Kamptal, and then making uh, some of the best red wines in, uh, in Austria, in Burgenland, Zweigelt and Blaufrankisch. Um, and then she came to England and she was teaching winemaking at uh, Plumpton College uh, for a year. Um, uh, so yeah, absolutely, our, our winemaking efforts are joint efforts now. Um, uh, Anna is fantastic in the uh, vineyard management side of things, so she's taking over the, the management of the two um, uh, Sugru uh, vineyards, Storrington Priory Vineyard and Mount Harry. And, uh, and she's actually a massive part of the re reason why, after 16 years of, uh, of, of me making the wines at Whiston Estate, uh, that we're going out on our own and we're focusing now on Sugru South Downs. Um, she's ruthlessly efficient uh, and, uh, and, and, and therefore a fantastic teammate to have at my, on my side. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, uh, and it's, it's great seeing you both together, uh, as I did at an event, uh, charity event, uh, a few months ago. Um, what uh, is next then for uh, Sugru South Downs? Because um, at the moment, it's, uh, it's still relatively small scale compared to some of the other enterprises that you've been involved with, isn't it? It's true. Yeah, it's 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 our little baby, Sugru South Downs. Um, you know, I've been I've been, as I said, I was involved in planting that the first vineyard back in 2006. So the year that that I left Nightimber, the year that I started Wiston, I also started the Sugru South Downs project, the Trouble Dreams project. Um, and and now to it's it's kind of quietly matured into this quite spectacular little entity over the years. You know the, the initial production was was only five thousand bottles of wine a year. That's increased to about ten thousand bottles of wine a year um, over the last. If you consider what we're releasing at the moment, those vintages from two thousand fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, and seventeen, they only comprise about ten thousand bottles worth of, of production. And uh, and we've won now for the last two years running Wine GB Boutique Producer of the Year. Possibility we could win it a third time. I'll know at the end of this week or maybe the beginning of next week. That would be pretty cool to win it three times in a row. But we need to increase our production um, because the demand for our wines is extremely high. We're getting more and more listings in, 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 in top restaurants and top accounts all the time in the UK. And our exports are, are really taking off. Very, very important export markets like Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, we're just about to start in, and Germany, the biggest sparkling wine market in the world, as well as Ireland and the US. Um, so these are growing export markets for us. And, and, and if we don't make more wine now, and if we don't take advantage of of, of the best vintages that are coming up over the next few years, then, then we're really, really missing a trick. And there's also something really powerful and pleasing to be focusing finally on, on my own brand, 
um, and, and our own project. Um, I've made wine for so many people over the years and it's been it's been wonderful experience. I'll continue to be a consultant winemaker for for many projects, not least because I need the money, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but also because I, I love collaborating with 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 other vineyards and other other winemakers. Um, so that'll continue. But to focus on ourselves and to grow um, this very, very special brand um, over the next uh, few decades is, is a really exciting place for both of us. Well, I wish you uh, the very best uh, for that. It's um, incredibly exciting, as we've said, what's going on uh, in English wine at the moment. But it's also uh, really exciting what you're doing with uh, Suguru South Downs and, and what uh, you no doubt will do next. Thank you so much again for interrupting uh, your honeymoon over there in uh, uh, Tenerife to uh, to talk to us uh, on the drinking hour. We uh, really appreciate it. And congratulations again on, uh, on tying the knot with Anna. Thank you so much indeed, David. Real pleasure. Absolute pleasure to talk to you again. And um, take very good care. Bye-bye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time to celebrate some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame before we go. And where better to start than a gold medal winner from the winemaking hands of one Dermot Segru. Uh, this is Whiston Estate, Cuvée Brut 2015. I was uh, actually on the judging panel for this one with uh, Roger Jones, Rebecca Palmer and John Hoskins MW uh, in charge that day. And we said this... A slight rose gold tint in the glass with an orchard fruit, bruised apple and honeycomb character on the nose. Beautifully floral and delicate berries textured and layered with tiny bubbles dancing on the palate. Super clean, long and complex. Next, who doesn't love a Madeira? Blandy's 10-year-old Boile, non-vintage, won a strong silver medal with 93 points. The wines are traditionally named after the noble white grapes from which they derive, um, all grown at different altitudes on Madeira. Amazing place. Um, the driest of those uh, noble grapes is Sir Charles, then medium dry Vidalho, followed by medium sweet Boile, uh, with uh, Malmsey or Malvasia as the uh, richest, sweetest of the uh, quartet. So this is Boile, medium sweet, without ever being cloying. Uh, the judges said of this, Fresh and racy with green plum and a touch of fresh honey-laced flapjack. Delicious raisin and figs dripping with caramel sweetness and creamy crushed Brazil nuts. Uh, to Italy now and a silver medal winning Amaroni della Valpolicella at Santa Sofia 2013. Uh, the grapes here uh, blended Corvina uh, Corvinoni and Rondinella. And the judging panel saying this, inviting aromas of ripe cherry, strawberry and plum with vanilla and cedar undertones. Elevated acidity, freshness, firm tannins and a silky texture conclude with a long, persistent finish. And incidentally, from the same producer, also winning a silver medal, um, here's another style of Valpolicella, a ripasso, uh, which uh, literally means repassed uh, with this particular technique. Uh, the pomace of uh, leftover grape skins and seeds from the fermentation of uh, that Amarone are then added to a batch of uh, Valpolicella for a period of extended maceration. It's all very clever. Santa Sofia, 
2018 Val Policella Ripasso Superiori, uh, silver medal winner, as I said. The judges said this, black currant, floral, red and black cherries and cured meat aromas with firm, fine tannins and lingering black and red currant flavours with a long finish. And finally, for this time, let's raid the spirits cabinet uh, for not just a gold medal winner in 2022, but also a trophy winner representing the best in show. Irish Distillers Red Breast, 27-year-old Irish whiskey. The panel, which included Dawn Davis MW, a past guest on the drinking hour, of course, and also uh, Shannon Tebay, a very recent guest, uh, talking cocktails a few weeks ago. Uh, they waxed lyrical about this uh, single pot still Irish whiskey, saying expressive aromatics of red fruits, mango, guava and Christmas cake baking spices. Boasts a rich, beautiful texture within its luxurious palate. A subtle fieriness punctuates the decadently long finish. Luxurious and exceptionally made. Sounds divine. Well, way to finish. That's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. Uh, my thanks to Dermot Segru for a fantastic chat. And thank you to you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, though, it's goodbye for now. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.